And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'd like to pray before we hear the sermon. Father God, thank you so much that we are able to be here to praise you in unity and to hear together the preaching from your word. Father, please bless it and embed it down into our hearts. Help us to understand it. And I pray that the preaching would be with power. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We come to Revelation 19 and... Uh, it seems like there's a change in the weather. It seems like the barometer pressure is changing. It's like, it's like singing this last song that we sang, When We See Your Face, and uh, there, there's, a, there's a realization that there's, there's, there's pain and there's difficulty and there's battle and there's struggles, but yet there's this day coming when all the pressure is going to be released and we're going to be free and we're going to be worshiping God. And you get that sense as you come to Revelation 19, the, the pressure valve has been released. And what we get is a, a glimpse into heaven now of, of the celebration that takes place at the end of the ages when Babylon is defeated. And it also gives us a little bit of an insight on how we live as we still are anticipating that day. We ended last Sunday and our theme was, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Uh, give up its seductions. Uh, stay away from its delusions. Stay away from its enticements. Come out of her, my people, and worship God. And, and we gave some kind of, uh, some hints at what that looked like. Here in Revelation 19, in, in two words, and I've already said them, we get sort of the, the cumulative or the big picture way of how we come out of Babylon. And it is simply in two words. Worship God. By worshiping God, we are declaring, I will not be seduced by Babylon. And so these two words really sum up what I want to say uh, this morning, worship God. And in fact, you can go through the book of Revelation and you can find expressions of worship dotted all throughout the book. One of my favorite places of worship is in uh, Revelation chapter 5 where we have uh, what we might call three explosions of worship as three different bodies in heaven, just explode with praise and adoration to the Lamb. And so what we have here is a glimpse into a worship uh, service that's taking place in heaven. And that worship service revolves around God. 
God is the focus. God is the content of the people's worship. You might have picked that up as you went, uh, as the text was being read, um, why God is worthy to be worshipped. He is the God of salvation, glory, and power. He is a God whose judgments are just and true. He is a God who vindicates his servants or those who follow him and trust in him. He is the God of small and great alike. He is the almighty God who reigns. We sang that in that song, Holy, Holy, Lord God Almighty. He is the God who will accomplish his plan of gathering from every tribe, nation, tongue, uh, people to be the bride of his son, Christ. And so he's worthy of worship. So it helps to just get a little bit of the contents or context for worship that develops the content of worship. The context of worship is Revelation 17 and 18, which we've just worked through over the last two or three weeks. And what John hears is the response of heaven to the judgment of Babylon. That's what he's responding to. That's what the worship of heaven is responding to, is God's judgment on Babylon. If you remember when we talk about Babylon, Babylon is the summary of civilization in its orchestrated, organized, and demonically energized opposition to God. Babylon is everything that's opposed to God. And it's represented in, in two major ways, and certainly we've seen this in Revelation 17 and 18. It's represented in its sort of religious wing, which is the great prostitute. The one who seduces, the one who tries to draw us away from loyalty and faithfulness to God into spiritual adultery with the world and the things of the world. It's a subtle seduction. It's a subtle allurement. But then there's the opposite side of that same coin, which is the coercive, oppressive, in-your-face power, which is expressed in the beast, and it comes to us through political establishments. And we've talked about that for weeks over how Revelation describes the various ways in which the beast manifests itself in this world to coerce us into following it. I was sent a note about... Uh, uh, a paper that was signed by a group of 250 Chinese pastors. They publicly signed a statement opposing the new regulations that are being instituted by the Communist Party in China. And the concluding comments of their statement was this sentence, which again, remember, they signed publicly in opposition to the Communist government. They said, for the sake of the gospel, we are prepared to bear all losses even the loss of our freedom and the loss of our lives. They will not be seduced by Babylon. And so Revelation 17 and 18 has talked about the judgment of Babylon. In verse 1 of chapter 17, the angel says to John, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. Revelation 18, 2, the angel declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. In verse 8, it says the Lord has judged her. In verse 10, it says in a single hour, her judgment has come. And so we look around and we see this world and it's full of injustice. It's full of evil and opposition. And we see its destructive power and we wonder, is God ever going to do every, anything? And Revelation 17 and 18 say, yes, God is going to do something. So after this, after seeing the visions of the judgment of Babylon, after this, John says, I heard. Notice, it's a shift because all through Revelation, it's I saw. And, then, and after this, I saw. 
And after this, I saw, and here in Revelation 19, for the first time, he shifts that, and it's not what he sees, it's what he heard. I think it's important that we understand the shift here in the context of worship. We're familiar with I saw, but we're not familiar with I heard. But yet it's somehow fitting with a worship service. For instance, if, if you were here at our church a number of years ago, we um, conducted what we called Bethlehem Walk, and it was an opportunity for people in the community to come and experience a, a sort of a, a rendition of a village in Bethlehem. And if you had asked people at the end of that about uh, Bethlehem, they would likely have described it in terms of what they saw. But if you talk to people as they leave here today, maybe a visitor, maybe somebody that's new, they would likely, more likely, talk to you about what they heard. Oh, I, I heard the choir. I heard the worship. I heard the prayer for the offering. I heard the sermon. And, and it's fascinating to me that as John now turns to worship, he describes it in terms of what he hears and not by what he sees. And I think about that with corporate worship. What is the most important thing when we gather? Is it aesthetics? Is it, is it what we wear? Is it what we see? Or is it what we hear? Is it the content of our worship? And so John describes the content of heaven's worship. It's like when we come to Revelation 19 now here, what we get to do is eavesdrop on heaven. And this is a good eavesdropping. We get to eavesdrop on a worship service that's taking place in heaven. And he's contrasting it with those who worshiped Babylon. And it's like he's saying, don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasure of Babylon. Don't worship the, 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 the power of Babylon. Don't worship the luxuries of Babylon. Worship God. And that's the contrast that he's trying to draw by Revelation 19 juxtaposed with Revelation 17 and 18. Do we understand what worship is? Do we understand or do we ever think about that worship is one of the primary ways in which we counter the seduction of Babylon? When we gather together each week, particularly in this corporate way, we are celebrating God. As we gather together, we are worshiping and we are declaring to one another that is gathering around here. We're declaring to God who we are worshiping. We're declaring to a watching world who has seen you leave your houses, who have seen you drive down the roads and maybe pull into the parking lot, who has watched across the street and you've gone out of your car and you've walked into this church. They are, you are declaring to them where your loyalties lie. You're declaring to them that your loyalties lie with the people of God, and most importantly, your loyalty lies with God. We're declaring that we will not be seduced by Babylon. We're declaring that we will not be seduced by its pleasures or by its treasures. We refuse to be taken in by the satanically energized lie that there's more satisfaction to be found in the world seven days a week than there is to be found in God. And so when we gather together, in this public way, we are saying, I will not be seduced by Babylon. I will not be deceived by Babylon. I choose to worship God and only God. A number of years ago, in the early 90s, John Piper preached a message on Revelation 19, 1 to 10. And I want to just read a couple statements he makes. He articulates it so well. He articulates this contrast between worshiping God and worshiping Babylon. Uh, when I mention Bethlehem, that's the name of his church. And so he says, corporate worship at Bethlehem 
is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found God to be the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven, to all of Babylon, that we will not prostitute our minds and our hearts and our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon... We will not be captive to Babylonian ways. An open declaration in the midst of Babylon. A public savoring of the worth and beauty and power and wisdom of God. And so today, again, we're, we're making a statement. We're making a declaration as we gather here, as we choose to be here. Rather than any place else, as we choose to gather corporately, publicly to worship God, we are declaring God has my heart. God is my focus. I am a follower of God. Three more sentences. He says, corporate worship at Bethlehem is the blatant public savoring of God in the midst of a very seductive Babylonian culture. I like that. We are making a blatant statement by being here and not out there. Worship is the fla flagrant, open enjoyment. Of, I love that. Flagrant. It means, it means you're going to show it to everybody. It's the flagrant, open enjoyment of God as the fountain of life. And therefore, it's a public declaration that God is more to be desired than all the pleasures of Babylon. i got to ask you, as you've not been worshiping here this morning, has it been hard for you to think about the world? Have you not been drawn into the presence of God to think about God and to think about his character and to think about what Christ has done, to think about his holiness, to think about his blood, to, to, to think about his beauty, his glory, to think about the hope of heaven? As we've been worshiping, has it been hard for you to think about Babylon? I hope it has been. I've just been drawn into it today. And I know it's only an hour in the midst of 167 other hours, but it's an hour that is an open, public, blatant, flagrant declaration that I worship God and not Babylon. The sound of worship. The sound of worship. It, again, he describes it in terms of what he hears. What does he hear? It, it, it's summed up in, in a single word. Hallelujah. Four times in these verses, verses 1 to 10. Hallelujah! Do you know that in the whole of the New Testament, that word is not found anywhere except here. This is the only place in the New Testament where hallelujah is found. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And, and so often you can go into the Old Testament and the Greek word hallelujah is translated praise the Lord. And there's a reason why that I don't have time to explain that. But you can go to particularly the Hallel Psalms that were sung around the Passover, Psalms 113 to 118. And hallelujah um, is found there numerous times and it's often translated praise God. And so this is, a, this is how we praise God. It's through hallelujahs. It's, it's through de declaring praise God. And notice how he describes it. In the first place, he describes it as a loud voice, or like it seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude crying out. 
Some of you have likely been to a Seahawks game. And the Seahawks stadium is known to be one of the loudest stadiums, outdoor stadiums in the world. In fact, twice it has got the Guinness's book of records for having the loudest recorded shouting. Uh, once in 2013, it was at 136.6 decibels. And once in 2014, it was 137.6 decibels. That's a little bit quieter than our singing this morning. But the record was broken in 2014 at a Monday night football game against the New England Patriots by the Kansas City, whatever they are. Some of you might know. But at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City, they recorded a 142.2 decibels. If you've ever been to the Seahawks Stadium in a football game, it is deafening. And it's, it's intended, it's designed that way so that when the crowd screams and yells, it drowns out the ability of the opposing team to hear the quarterback's instructions. Think about that in terms of the worship and praise of heaven. Just drowning out any other communication, any other thought except praise and adoration of God. I am sure that heaven will destroy the Guinness's book of records for the loudest outdoor stadium. He also describes it like the roar of many waters. I was out hiking a couple weeks ago, uh, just after a bunch of the rains, and I parked my truck, and then I just took off into the woods. And after I been walking for a little while, I, I began to hear roaring water. And I was, I was drawn to it, and so I, I just kept kind of going in the direction of the sound, and I was expecting as I got near to this place that it would be this, this mighty gushing um, river that was just fueled by all the rains. And I got there, and it was a stream, maybe the width of the piano, and it was just deafening. Like, I couldn't even hear myself walk on the, on the ground. I, I, it hardly could, and it was so loud. Well, he describes the praise in heaven as the sound of many rushing waters. And then he describes it like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. I searched the internet. I'm not really good on the internet, but I searched the internet to try and find um, a recorded sound of thunder and lightning. And I wanted to play it in our new sound system and just shake you all out of your seats and boom it out of these bases here. But you've heard, most of us have been in a, a thunderstorm. And you not only hear it, and it's same with water, and it's same with it. You not only hear it, your body shakes. You, you feel it reverberate through your very soul. And that's what John describes as he hears the sound of worship. I love the fact that he says, I heard the voices. This is one of the things I so appreciate about worship here. Is that yes, we try and have instrumentation. And we try and mix it well, and it's a challenge. And, you know, this, this team does an amazing job to do it week in, week out. But one of the things I appreciate is that our goal is to um, have the predominant sound, the sound that we hear is the voices of God's people. So, yes, we hear the piano. Yes, we hear the drums. Yes, we hear all of that. And I want to hear that. But it doesn't drown out the voices of God's people singing. And so John says, I heard the voices, and it sounded like this. The content of their worship is described here under the four uses of the word hallelujah. 
We'll just go through them really quickly. The first one is in verses 1 to 2. Hallelujah. Why? Salvation, glory, and power belong to God. Not Babylon. And our world is so seduced and sucked in to the lies and deceptions of Babylon. And we think that we will, we will be saved if we just get financial wealth. Or we will be saved if we can just have this fit, trim body. Or we'll be saved if, if, if somehow we can get to the right doctor. We look for salvation in Babylon. But Babylon is destroyed and the declaration is no. Salvation is found in God. Salvation belongs to God. And then glory Glory in the Old Testament is described as weightiness. There's a book that came out probably 12, 15 years ago by David Wells. And in it, he's got a whole section in there on how our culture, um, God has become weightless. God has become of no consequence in our culture. It ignores God. It denies God. It pushes God out of the picture. For the Christian, God has weight. God has consequence. And so what he's saying here is that the glory of God is weighty. It matters. It makes a difference. It has influence. Glory belongs to God and power. God made this world and keeps it in its place. How? By the power of his word. Stunning. Hebrews 11. By faith we believe that God created this universe by the word. He spoke it into existence. Is that not power? And he maintains it moment by moment with his word. Hallelujah. Praise God for salvation, glory, and power belong to him. And he gives a further reason for his judgments are just and true. They're perfect. They're right. They're without error. Secondly, hallelujah. In verse 3. Her smoke goes up forever. Those who first read Revelation or heard it read would have immediately attributed Rome to Babylon, that Rome would have been an expression of Babylon. And you know what Rome was known as? The eternal city. She's no longer known, though, as the eternal city because she's long gone. But her torment is forever and ever. It's hard to picture heaven rejoicing over the eternal suffering of those that have rejected God from earth's perspective. Because I think we on earth have a real trouble with suffering from so many points of view. And we look at suffering from our perspective and it's hard for us to attach or detach ourselves from thoughts of innocence or injustice or vindictiveness to suffering or unfairness to suffering. And so from our perspective, sometimes we look at suffering and we look at the eternal nature of suffering and we look at, at hell and the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and, and the place of uh, punishment for those who reject God as an eternal punishment and we have a hard time with it. But from heaven's perspective, there is rejoicing and there is praising God because from heaven's perspective, it is just and true and right. Thirdly, in verses 4 to 5, we have the third expression of heaven's praise and it is simply declared by the four living creatures and the 24 elders and it's just general. They just say, hallelujah, praise God. 
as they, as they witness God's power and might, as they witness the fall and the destruction of Babylon, it's just praise God, praise God, hallelujah. And then amen, which is so be it. It's, it's agreeing with what God has done and with what God is doing. When we say amen, we're expressing agreement with it. And praise is entered into by all those who fear God, both great and small. And then the fourth expression is the joy of worship, which is illustrated by a wedding feast. If you have time this afternoon, maybe read Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 15. Matthew chapter 22, the verse 14, first 14 verses. And Matthew chapter 25, the verse, first 13 verses, because they describe the kingdom of heaven as a wedding feast, which is what John does here. And at weddings, we celebrate, don't we? We celebrate commitment. We celebrate loyalty. We celebrate love. We celebrate relationships and family. And they are intended to be occasions of incredible joy. And the Bible illustrates marriage, physical marriage. We, we've been talking about this a lot, that, that so little in the Bible is meant to be taken just at face value. That behind physical realities are spiritual realities. That's one of the ways you read the Old Testament is you understand that underlying a lot of the physical commands and laws that you find in the, in the Old Testament is a spiritual truth. Well, it's the same with marriage. All of us who are married and who are followers of Christ, we are physically married, but you know that we model or we image the relationship of Christ and his church? There's a spiritual dimension to our marriages. And so in verses 6 to 10, the chorus in heaven rings out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Why? The Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. I just want to stop there for a moment. We praise God because of his sovereign rule and reign. We praise God because he is on the throne, not the beast, not the dragon. We praise God because there is a throne in heaven that dominates the universe and controls the universe. We praise God because the Almighty reigns. And do we believe that, though? When your life is turned upside down, when the circumstances of your world seem out of control, when there's pain and suffering, when there's hurt, and when there's things that you don't understand, things that you can't comprehend, times when God is silent... Can you say, hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns? That's a declaration of truth. It's a declaration of worship. One day we will see the reality of that, and our circumstances, whatever they might be, will make sense in the light of the throne of God. But this side of that great heavenly celebration is faith. Why are they celebrating the almightiness of God here? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. One of the greatest expressions of the power and might and sovereignty of God is in the church is in the bringing together of a bride for his son, Christ. 
Here the celebration is that God has brought about the culmination of redemption. This is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story that is woven through the Bible is God's redeeming power, God's redeeming love, God's transformative work in the lives of those who were rebels and sins against him. How God calls us out of darkness, how God calls us out of our redemption. He redeems us, he transforms us, and he brings us into the church, which is the bride of Christ, which one day at the end of this age he will present pure and spotless to his son, Jesus Christ. John Piper says, all the redemptive history for thousands of years has been aiming at this one thing, the final union of the son and God and the people of God in glory forever and ever. It's captured in that song. Some of you may remember uh, the church's one foundation. From heaven he came and sought her. Who? the people of God, the church, to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And Paul's goal in the Corinthian church, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. See, we're betrothed to Christ. And in the Hebrew understanding of marriage, betrothal was the same as being married. We are committed to Christ. And there is a time of preparation between the betrothal, which was understood as marriage, and the return of the groom when he would come and get his bride and take her back to his house for the marriage supper. And this is what the Bible is describing. It's the Hebrew sort of approach to marriage. And so we are now the church and individuals in the church betrothed to Christ. We are married to Christ. We are faithful to God. He alone gets our worship and adoration. We are preparing to meet him for when he comes to get us. Notice it says the bride has made herself ready. There's a lot of preparation that goes into weddings, isn't there? Some of you who, um, well, there's just a lot of preparation that goes into marriages. I think for a lot of girls, there's a lot of thought that goes into their wedding. You know, I don't know if they still do it today, but they used to have hope chests and stuff, and they would buy their, their china and, I don't know, they just get ready for their wedding. And there's a preparation that we undergo as a church that takes place through the preaching of the word, through the singing of the word, through our interaction in small groups and growth groups, through, through our um, coffees with one another as we pray for one another, as we challenge one another, as we exhort, exhort, exhort one another, as we forgive one another, as we bear one another's burdens. There's a, there's a preparation. It's not without purpose. It's a preparing of ourselves that we might be presented holy and pure to Christ. Notice it says that she is dressed in fine linen. This is surely a contrast with the prostitute who is dressed in scarlet and purple. Remember, the bride of Christ is contrasted with the great prostitute. This bride is dressed in fine linen, which is her righteous deeds. Sometimes we get hung up on that, and people have got hung up on that. Well, so I need to work at my salvation. It's my deeds that, that attribute uh, to my worthiness and my goodness before Christ, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. And I left here last week anxious, 
lest I left in any one of your hearts and minds that somehow your relationship with God was rooted in your works. It's not. Our relationship to God is rooted entirely and solely in the work of Jesus Christ. But as we work through this text and in other texts, we understand, though, that justification, that is our being made right with God, is bound up with a faith that works. In other words, our, our faith does not result in our justification, but our faith grows out of our justification into sanctification as we choose to walk with God, as we obey God. But even those deeds, notice it says in the text that it was granted to her to clothe herself with linen. And so even our works have been given to us by God. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says there that we, have been, we are his workmanship created um, uh, before the foundation of the world for good works. So there's this, this relationship, this tension, this union between, yes, our, our serving of God, our, our sanctification, our, our good works, but those are a gift from God for us to do. And those do not in any way contribute to our right standing before God. And so there's this wonderful picture of the dry bride preparing herself and being prepared by God for this final day of the wedding with Christ. And then I, I, I will end here. Verse 9. It's the fourth beatitude of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words are true. We shift here now to individual. You can't, you can't push the symbolism too woodenly. The bride is the church, but the church is made up of individuals. And so he says, blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. First of all, blessed, it's a beatitude. It's what we find in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed is a, is a word um, that means all oh, the happiness of, all oh, the joy of. Um, it, it's, a, it's a word of just incredible, deep internal emotion and satisfaction and contentment. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The invitation goes out to all. In fact, everyone who is here today, you have heard about Christ in our songs. I'm telling you about Christ now, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's an invitation that goes out through the gospel, that goes out through the word of God. And you can find these stories in, in Matthew chapter 22 where God or Jesus tells the parable that the kingdom of heaven is described as like a, a, a man who was going to throw a wedding feast and he was ready for the feast and he sent out his servants to call those who had been invited. And many of them began to make up excuses. Well, I've got this, I've got that, I've just got married, I've just got 12 yokes of oxen. And he's mad. And he says, so go out in the highways, in the byways, and compel people to come in. The point here is that you need to RSVP. You need to respond to the, to the invitation. You know about the gospel. 
you know about Christ being the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know that God sent his Son into the world to, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, and that all who would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. You know that the invitation is extended again and again, and come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you need to respond. You need to accept the invitation and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the angel says to him, these words are true. These are the true words of God. This is not a lie. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a story of the church. These are the words of God. This wedding is going to happen. And it is the wedding that you want to be at. But you have to accept the invitation. Blessed are those who are invited and who have accepted the invitation. Don't cut yourself out. Don't resist Christ any longer. Respond to that tug that you experience in your heart and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Father, Thank you for your word today. I thank you for the reminder it has been to me of how central worship is in my ability to combat the seduction of Babylon. It has been a joy to be here today, already to worship with God's people, your people, to talk about you, to sing about you, to read about you, to hear about you. It gives me power to resist when I leave here now and go out in the midst of Babylon for the next six days because I know there's going to be another opportunity for me to flagrantly and blatantly declare my loyalty and my allegiance to you.